Have you ever been in love? Have you ever thought about what you would do for love? How far you'd go? If you ask Yen Soaring, he was so in love that he took the blame for a horrific crime to protect the woman he loved. If you ask detectives who investigated that crime, Yen's was so in love he was willing to kill. So what is the truth? This is Small Town Big Crime. I'm Jacqueline Piermarini, and along with Rachel Ryan and Courtney Stewart, we're investigating a decades-old crime that has pitted detective against detective and created an international firestorm. We're here to dig through the evidence to figure out what really happened the night Derek and Nancy Hasem were murdered. I didn't freaking do this. I did not do this crime. Elizabeth walked in and looked at her and said, I'm the devil and you're the sacrificial lamb. There were two other males walking around in that house bleeding, and we have no idea who they are. And nobody's even tried to figure it out. You had a very immature, uh, inexperienced, basically incompetent investigator who's now the chief deputy down there who, who wants this all to go away. Are you kidding me? Did he ever see this crime scene? Did he ever see the house? Did he ever see any of the evidence? We want to get some information about who these guys were. What the DNA test results say to me. He also could tell us what his dad's blood type is. <gasps> Do you think he knows? She said one thing that attracted her was his evil side. Once you just get into the details of what was actually shown and proven at trial and before trial, Yin Zering's credibility is completely gone. There's just nothing left. If nothing else, let's get this stuff back to the lab to get it checked out to make sure we don't have a murderer or two running around loose out here. In early April 1985, Bedford County authorities were called to a scene of breathtaking brutality. Derek Hasem, a former steel industry CEO, and his wife, Nancy, a socialite related to the Astor family, had been stabbed over 30 times and nearly decapitated. Months went by with no arrests. But when suspicion turned to their youngest child, Elizabeth, she and her boyfriend Jens Soaring, the son of a German diplomat, fled the country and were eventually caught writing bad checks in London. Soon, a rookie Bedford County detective was on his way to England to interrogate Jens and Elizabeth about the Hasem murders, and he'd come away with a murder confession from Jens Soaring. This is a story about murder, but it's also a story about loyalty. Jens Soaring says he falsely confessed to the killings to save the real killer, Elizabeth, his first love. He never imagined he would spend the next 33 years of his life in prison. Now his legal team says new DNA evidence supports his innocence and suggests two unidentified men were at the scene of the crime. In November of 2019, Jens and Elizabeth were both paroled, but the Virginia governor denied Jens' petition for a pardon. In the eyes of the state, he's still a murderer. The sheriff's office and prosecutor in Bedford have been loyal to what they say is the truth, that Soaring is a killer who confessed to the crime. So what happened that night in March of 1985? A blood stain on a kitchen countertop might offer some clues, but it hasn't been tested for forensic evidence. Despite pressure from Soaring's star-studded legal team, celebrity supporters, and seasoned law enforcement officers, 
Bedford officials refused to consider they may have gotten it wrong. So what happened? Did an 18-year-old scholar with no criminal history single-handedly kill his girlfriend's parents without leaving a trace of DNA at the scene? Or did Elizabeth commit the crime and set up her boyfriend to take the fall? But why would she want her parents dead? And who are the two men who left blood at the crime scene? Let's go back to 1985 in Bedford County, Virginia. It's a rural county outside Lynchburg, nestled at the foot of the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's where Derek and Nancy Hasten retired to be close to Nancy's family after life working abroad and traveling the world. Described by friends as an English gentleman and a Southern belle, the Hasems had settled into a routine of weekly card games, painting classes, and lots of cocktail parties at the home they called Loose Chippings, until it all abruptly and violently ended one night in March. We got two bodies over here on the floor and they've been here a while and it says, I ain't never seen this much blood. So I says, don't touch or do a thing, guard the door, I'm on my way. Carl Wells was a longtime Bedford County Sheriff and he was in charge of the Hasem murder investigation. He's in his 80s now and he's been retired for years, but this case has never been far from his mind. He invited us to his home one afternoon to talk about the crime. Nice to meet you. And I'm Courtney. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Oh, this is beautiful. Thank you so much. Sheriff Wells and his wife Dale greeted us on the front porch, standing over six feet tall and wearing jeans, a white t shirt, and suspenders. (laughs) Oh, you hadn't turned around and looked at the mountain. No, I hadn't turned around yet. That's That's, gorgeous. That's the peaks of Ottawa. Sheriff Wells said even though Bedford was rural, there had been some pretty serious crimes in the 80s, including capital murder cases. Even so, the scene at Loose Chippings was shocking. Well, you walk through the door, he was laying there, and she was over here. Blood all over everything. His throat cut. She was stabbed. It was just a massive blood mess. That's all you could say about all of the floor. And you could see where they had thrashed around on the floor. The very first thing detectives saw when they walked in was Derek Hasem's body laying in a pool of blood. He's wearing green work trousers and a short-sleeved shirt, his head up against the fireplace. An autopsy will later show he's been stabbed and slashed more than 30 times, and his throat was cut so deeply his head was almost severed. It was worse than anything I'd seen before. Now, I'd been all kinds of murder scenes before that, some that you have nightmares over quicker than that, especially if a child was involved. But uh, as far as just total bloody mess, no. That was the worst I'd ever been to. Investigators had to step over his body and walk through the dining room and into the kitchen where Nancy Hasem was also found in a pool of blood. She's wearing a blue flowered house coat. She's been stabbed five times, once through her heart. Her head has also been nearly severed. Crime scene photos show a dining table set for two. They'd eaten meatloaf and there was ice cream melted in a bowl. Wine glasses and a half-empty vodka bottle were out of the liquor cabinet. A third chair is pushed away from the table, as though someone had been sitting with the Hasems at dinner and had suddenly stood up. Sheriff Wells said looking around, there wasn't an obvious motive for the crime. 
you know, somebody had gone and killed them for monetary gain on their part. There'd been something missing. Wasn't anything missing. Bank books weren't missing. Nothing. Everything they had, silverware, china, nice stuff, was everything there. All right, where's the motive? What's the motive? You know, something like that doesn't happen without a motive. The secret is figuring out what and why. In order to figure out who might want them dead, detectives had to find out who were the Hasems. Catherine Mosley Brown grew up in Lynchburg, the small city a few miles from the Hasem home, and her family ran in the same exclusive social circle as the Hasems. So Mrs. Hasem was a very elegant woman, but she was also very reserved. It wasn't like she was always stoic and couldn't laugh and because she enjoyed playing bridge with my mother. She's very competitive at her bridge game. Nancy was petite, with green eyes and reddish-brown hair and a soft, genteel voice. But she also had a fierce intellect and a steely will. A relative told a local newspaper shortly after her death that, quote, if Nancy had been a man, I'm confident she would have been president of General Motors. She was an accomplished pianist and an artist as well, taking a weekly water painting class at the Lynchburg Art Club. She was a descendant of the Astor family and was treated like royalty in Lynchburg, where her family had roots. She was the daughter of a well-known geologist who traveled the world and met Derek Hasem when her family was living in South Africa. Hasem, a South African World War II war hero, was an executive with an iron and steel company in Rhodesia, now part of Zimbabwe. He was almost 20 years older, and it was a second marriage for both. They brought to the marriage five children, and together had a sixth, a daughter, Elizabeth, born in 1964. The family fled South Africa as racial tensions mounted, and after a brief stint in Europe, they settled in Nova Scotia, where Derek became chairman and CEO of Sydney Steel, Nova Scotia's largest steel firm. When Derek Hasem retired, the couple moved to Bedford County as empty nesters. As their daughter Elizabeth finished high school at a boarding school in Europe, she later enrolled at the University of Virginia, less than two hours northeast of their home. They'd only been in Bedford a few years, but had quickly become part of the high society scene. Word of their murders traveled fast around town, and the brutality of it was shocking enough. The fact that nothing was stolen made it even more sinister. You know, and everybody was scared. Was there a rogue murderer around? The 911 call came in on Wednesday afternoon, March 30th. Friends got worried when the couple didn't show for a scheduled card game, and Nancy's closest friend went to the house and used a spare key to let herself in to a scene of horror that would shake even seasoned investigators. No murder weapon found at the scene but there was plenty of physical evidence to collect. To start with the blood, on a countertop in the kitchen, on a damp dish rag by Nancy Hasem's body, and on a door handle. Footprints were visible in the pooled blood and a sock print was found smudged. Fingerprints were on a shot glass and the vodka bottle not far from Derek Hasem's body. As investigators worked their way through the house, they noticed a sheet missing from the first floor master bedroom. And Sheriff Wells said there were signs of a cleanup in the master bathroom. And once we sprayed the bathroom with Roll, that thing lit up 
because see that's the element that will bring blood out. You can wash it up, you can clean it up, you can take it and not see it. But when you spray it with that, it'll, it'll light up. And it did. So we knew somebody had gotten in that bathtub and taken a shower. Because it was on the curtain. And it's, those two of that definitely hadn't taken a shower. So somebody left there after taking a shower. Investigators quickly determined the bodies had been there for a few days and got to work looking for suspects. One of the lead detectives was Chuck Reed, who's now retired but still lives in Bedford. He says the brutality of the crime scene and the distance between the bodies convinced him there had to be more than one killer. It was my first thought when I walked in the house and saw this was a gang came from South Africa over here and did him in for some, because the apartheid was going on back then, and I figured he had some enemies. The Bedford County Sheriff's Department reached out to business associates around the world, but came up empty-handed. Closer to home, they started interviewing family members and friends to find out who might have held a grudge against the couple. Their first promising lead involved the groundskeeper at the Hasem home. According to detectives, Derek Hasem had recently fired the man because he didn't like the way he cut their trees. And the man had a criminal record. After several interviews, Detective Reed said they ruled him out as a suspect. In the meantime, rumors swirled in the Hasem neighborhood. There were comparisons to Charles Manson and talk of a satanic cult. That's where it was so much different from other murder cases I worked. Things just started getting a little weird. Little swirls in the blood in the dining room. And possible 666. And I know Mr. Hasem had a V cut in his chin. We found a mousetrap, actually two mousetraps, one sitting in the kitchen window. And the manufacturer was Victory. And we got into that. If you turn that upside down, the V, and look in the V, it's the shape of a ghost type thing. I mean, every we looked at every little thing you could think of. Then we went to a couple of psychics. Uh, I mean, we, we covered everything you could think of. And a lot of people said, you know, what are you doing that for? This was silly. Well, no, that's part of it. You've got to do what you got to do. That's keeping an open mind. The psychics didn't provide any fresh leads, but the FBI did. Bedford County Sheriff Carl Wells had asked the FBI for help in creating a profile of the suspect. The FBI's Behavioral Science Unit, depicted in shows like Criminal Minds and Mind Hunters, provided investigators with a profile of their killer, a female who was close to the victim's. On a tip from the Hasem's youngest daughter, Elizabeth, detectives zeroed in on the girlfriend of one of the Hasem's sons. She was familiar with the Hasem's home, and Detective Reed said there was talk she was involved with some satanic rituals. She also had a motive. Well, she dated the youngest son, Julian, and he broke up with her. And she wasn't happy about it. People say she blamed Mr. and Ms. Hasem for it. Mary was her name. She was the daughter of a judge in Lynchburg. Alarm bells went off for detectives when she failed a polygraph test, and they realized her foot size was similar to the bloody footprint found at the scene of the crime. But it looked like another dead end in the investigation, when her blood type didn't match anything at the scene. But she did give Detective Reed and his partner, Ricky Gardner, their biggest break in the case, with a story about an encounter with Elizabeth Hasem after the wake of her dead parents that made their jaws drop. 
she was in the kitchen and Elizabeth walked in and looked at her and said, I'm the devil and you're the sacrificial lamb. She felt Elizabeth was involved the whole time. She wasn't the only one. Members of the Hayson family and close friends were also beginning to whisper about Elizabeth's odd behavior in the months after her parents' death. Elizabeth's older brother, Dr. Howard Hayson, would later testify that in the weeks after their parents' murder, Elizabeth suggested the family clean up the house instead of hiring commercial cleaners to do it. The rest of the siblings were horrified by the thought of cleaning up the bloody murder scene. They hired professionals anyways. However, days later, Dr. Hasem caught Elizabeth carefully scrubbing the screen door just outside the front door that had bloodstains. Before the house was cleaned, a family friend told officials that she saw Elizabeth take off her shoe and compare her own foot to the bloody sock prints still on the floor. And family members spoke of hearing Elizabeth joke about her father's brains being splattered near the fireplace. So six months into the investigation, detectives had a prime suspect, Elizabeth Hasem. By September, Elizabeth was starting her second year at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Detectives Reed and Gardner drove up one afternoon to collect her fingerprints and footprints and re-interview her. Toward the end of their conversation, detectives mentioned they wanted to speak with her boyfriend, fellow UVA student Jens Soaring. He drove to Bedford and met with them a few weeks later. Detective Reed said Soaring hadn't been on their radar as a suspect. First time I met Jens was the first week in October, that Sunday, when he walked in our office. He was a person of interest because that's back in, in September when we went to Charlottesville and got her blood and footprints, that's when we told her, you know, to get Jens to get in touch with us. So we did, so we made arrangements for him to come in that Sunday afternoon in mine and Ricky's office. I'd never seen him before in my life. And actually through that whole six months investigation, we'd never heard, you'd never heard much about Jens whatsoever, about him wanting anybody dead or anything like that. It was all about Elizabeth. It's kind of like he was back in a background somewhere. Now, of course, we knew they had a relationship going, but... Never saw him before until that Sunday he walked in, and I'm in the office, and here he comes. When he walked, stepped through that door, it hit me right there, and I said, there ain't no way. There is no way. I'm looking at that crime scene. I'm looking at this little rosy-cheeked kid stepping in my office, and I, so I just, me personally, I, I can't see it. Jens might not have looked like a killer to detectives, but his actions aroused their suspicions. He refused to give his fingerprints that day. And before detectives could follow up, Jens and Elizabeth had vanished. Next on Small Town, Big Crime. Jens and Elizabeth are caught in London. And what British detectives find leads to murder charges. Lynchburg Cablevision presents same-day coverage of the Yen Soaring trial from the Bedford County Circuit Court. Brought to you as a public service by Lynchburg Cablevision. Hi, this is Courtney Stewart. If you're enjoying this podcast and appreciate our work, please consider supporting us on Patreon. This type of investigative journalism is labor-intensive and expensive. Rachel and I are working on a new case for Season 2, and we can't do it without your help. Check out our Patreon page, Small Town, Big Crime. Hi, this is Rachel Ryan. When Courtney and I first started our podcast, we found the perfect place to work and network, Common House in Charlottesville. Now people in cities across the country and even around the world can benefit from a Common House membership. With other locations in Richmond and Chattanooga, Tennessee, 
Thousands of creative types, entrepreneurs, and other professionals like you are finding a social club that helps them make new connections, both personal and professional. Each location offers gorgeous, comfortable spaces for conversation, quiet spots for working, and tons of planned activities that spark conversation and networking. A Common House membership also comes with global benefits. You'll get access to dozens of clubs around the world, from San Francisco to London to Auckland to Singapore. Don't just take our word for it. Come check out Common House yourself, and if you spot us there, say hello.